This week's episode of The Kicker is brought to you by the Scripps Howard Awards. The Scripps Howard Awards, one of the nation's most prestigious journalism competitions, will accept entries through February 2nd. The 65th annual competition will present $170,000 in prize money for work across 16 different categories. Go to shawards.org for information and to enter. That's shawards.org. Hey guys, I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, a podcast about all things media from the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, Meg visits Slate's headquarters in Brooklyn to talk to Julia Turner, the outlet's editor-in-chief, about their new redesign and strategy for the next year. Then, our colleague Karen Cahoe joins us to discuss the biggest news of the week. But first, here's Meg with Julia Turner. So, Julia, thank you so much for chatting with CJR today. My pleasure. Uh, There are some big changes underway at Slate, and we're really curious to kind of understand what brought about the redesign, the logo, the kind of new strategy for the, the new year. Uh, we are so excited about our redesign. Uh, we launched a whole new look this week with, as you say, new homepage, new logo, new color, new typeface, new sections. Um, it's really the most comprehensive and wholesale redesign I think we've ever done. I've now worked here for 15 years and been involved in the three prior redesigns dating back to the last time we changed our logo in 2006. Um, and this is by far the most extensive, um, We've been wanting to change our look for a long time, but we also wanted to change our process for thinking about how we change our look. Um, You know, one of the key things about media at this moment is that you're creating a brand that an audience has a relationship with, but that lives in many places. Um, It has to live on Facebook. It has to live on Twitter. It has to live... Uh, you know, for us, when we've made such a huge investment in audio, it has to live in your podcast feeds and in your uh, audio experience in addition to just being the on-site reading experience, not to mention phones, iPads, you know, all the rest. So rather than saying, how should we organize everything on the homepage and what should it look like, we really approached this design from a brand identity perspective. And we were able to do that, I think, because of the talent and skill and canniness of our wonderful design director, Jason Santa Maria, who we hired about a year and a half ago, essentially to do this project. We knew we needed someone really talented and sophisticated, both about design, but also identity and organizations to uh, manage a project on this level. And he really approached it from a question of what is Slate? What is Slate's distinctive value proposition right now? And how can we create a really deep library of visual tools to convey what Slate's relationship with its audience is visually as well as in the work itself? So what is Slate's value proposition right now? Good question. (laughs) Um, You know, we are your smart, fun, skeptical friend, your companion who helps you figure out the world. Our audience is incredibly curious and incredibly well-informed. So we're really trying to bring next-level insights. We love to offer that kind of surprising jolt, a new way to think about something. You know, we have a reputation, I think, for being contrarian and for the slate pitch. uh, And and those are well-earned, but we don't set out to say the opposite of what people think or what is true. We set out to find 
insights, frameworks, ideas that will be surprising and interesting to a group of readers and listeners who already know and read a lot. I think that's part of why we're always pushing for kind of the next way to think about things. Um, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. One of my favorite things about the redesign is that I think it better conveys our sense of fun and, and um, ambitiousness, and that's uh, delightful. And also is aesthetically much more streamlined. Uh, you have the five verticals now, and there's no longer a double X uh, blog, which is the gendered focus ver- vertical for you know the last couple of years. I'm curious, you know, why move beyond the gendered verticals at a time, especially when gender is part of the national conversation in the midst of the Me Too movement and all the sexual harassment, you know, allegations uh, in across all industries. Something we'd been thinking about and wanting to do for a long time. You know, we started. Uh, actually, the real origin of Double X was in XX Factor, which is this blog that we launched in 2007 or 2008, essentially to cover Hillary's first run for president. Um, it developed into the standalone site and then this section where we covered issues of import to women uh, for a decade. But ever since I've taken over as editor, it's felt very strange to me to be the first female editor-in-chief of Slate and one of the few editors-in-chief, female editors-in-chief of a general interest magazine and have a women's pages still and have a place where we're saying, okay, well, reproductive rights news, that's that goes in the women's section. And news about changes to campus sexual assault policy, that goes in the women's section. And pieces about family. Some of those ran in our life section, but some of them ran in the women's section. And that just doesn't comport with either the news or how people think about their lives these days. I mean, to me, the fact that sexual harassment and gender have been at the center of the conversation for the past year as we've watched an incredibly competent and qualified woman lose the presidency to someone whose experience is significantly less, as we've watched uh, a complete shift in the way we think about women's testimony around their sexual experiences and what that should mean for men they've encountered in power and the various things they've done. Um, Those stories, in fact, are part of why we want to do this. Those stories are news. They belong in the news section. They're not women's news. They're not of interest to women. And, you know, our double X was always aimed at a a, um, unisex audience. It was never intended to be just for women readers. And that was always part of what made it distinctive, I think. But still, putting all that stuff under a purple logo just didn't feel modern or right to us anymore in terms of the centrality of those questions to the news. You know, and then I think as to why we launched Human Interest, I think there's a huge opportunity in the editorial landscape right now for a brand like Slate to really own coverage of parenting, family, and how we all live our lives. There's so many interesting questions about how we handle the responsibilities we have, the changing uh, nature of work-life balance at the moment of distributed work and the way we use technology these days. Um, And particularly parenting, it's something that everybody is concerned about. And that's why we love the name. It's like, these are things that are of interest to humans, all humans. So let's take our coverage of food and our coverage of child rearing and our coverage of dating and our coverage of work-life balance and put them in a section that's explicitly for everybody. It's a bit poetic that the XX blog started when Hillary first ran for president and kind of ended (laughs) following her last run. I have thought about that. (laughs) We had a great round table with the founders of the original Double X, just wondering kind of how far we've come and what the progress has been and and whether we should feel uh, 
defeated by her second defeat or uh, like perhaps we as a culture have learned something from it. And I think I think actually the set of stories we're seeing around Weinstein and other folks and around how we think about gender and power and sexual assault are responses to that loss. Um, but we're still going to be avidly covering issues of gender and women. Um, we're just going to put them all over the magazine. It's just more comprehensive, kind of like what the New York Times has done with their new gender editor, where it's thinking about gender across all different beats, not just as a separate beat itself. Right. Christina Cotarucci will still cover gender and sexuality for us, but she'll be writing on news when it's, you know, writing in our news and politics section when she's covering legislation and writing in our culture section when she's talking about representation within a movie. And she'll probably write for human interest some too, as she did our launch week talking about her um, procrastination habits. So uh, we'll certainly not be pulling back on that work at all. Women's blogs like Double X played a huge role in the conversation about gender for the last, you know, decade or so. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role that it played as well as kind of other sites like Jezebel and Feministing in shaping the conversation around gender, you know, in in the country today. I mean, I think broadly the Internet has been good at elevating the voices of people whose voices were not necessarily sufficiently represented in traditional pre-internet news coverage. I think that's true about gender. I think it's true about race. I think it's true about sexuality. I think just the efflorescence of content that digital publishing allows and that the abundance of platforms allows means that you can find more voices speaking on more topics and it helps you see things from a broader array of perspectives. And, you know, this the abundance of women's sites that we've seen in the past decade have produced some of my favorite work that journalism has produced in the last decade, have produced some of my least favorite work. I think it's been a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, it's helped amplify voices that are really important to listen to and attend to. I think the women's blogs were uh, big participants in outrage culture and, and the sort of tiresome cycle of, you know, using the internet to have a cheap and slightly boring negative response to some horrible thing that had happened. And I don't mean to dismiss how outrageous outrageous things can be and that that response is sometimes important, useful, and valuable. And I think some of the uh, shifts we've seen in our perception of Bill Cosby or even things like Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky um, probably have to do with how many more women we get to listen to these days. All of that's been to the good. But I do think um, the combination between having sites that focus on those viewpoints and then the economics of digital publishing where the more you, the, the hotter you stoke the flames of fury, the, the more traffic you get. And the economic incentives did not necessarily always make those conversations the most sophisticated and productive that they might be. You know, these are really complicated issues. It's usually more interesting to think about them in a subtle and nuanced way than to just be mad. Is there a fear that moving away from a kind of gender vertical uh, would have a negative impact on the array and types of voices that, you know, were usually present in the conversation about gender? I'm not concerned about it. I mean, it's something we watch closely and really value trying to make sure we have lots of diverse perspectives represented in the pages of Slate. It's something we're always working on and thinking about. It's something we're going to be tracking particularly closely as we make this transition. We're serious about continuing to cover the issues we've covered well. well, um, And so 
we won't be taking our eye off the ball there. We're going to quickly pivot, uh, pivot to audio, uh, which is something that I've been really interested in terms of Slate's growth. Uh, while so many other media organizations were focusing on pivoting to video, Slate decided not to do that and instead focused its resources on building its you know, podcasting suite, not just in-house, but with your sister company, Panoply. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the state of podcasts at Slate in 2018. Yeah, we're going to spend a lot of time and energy and financial investment growing the Slate Podcast Network in 2018. And, um, you know, we've been podcasting for 13 years. We did it when it was first cool. Then we kept doing it when everybody decided it wasn't cool. And then we were very well positioned when Serial was a sensation and suddenly podcasting was not just uh, an interesting and super engaging time-shifted audio format, but instead became a powerful advertising platform for advertisers. Um, so we were just, we had seen that engagement and just felt like this kind of relationship with an audience around sophisticated conversations and arguments is exactly what Slate exists to foster. And so even though there's not a great business model, we're just going to keep doing it because it really feels right and I think valuing that central relationship and the kind of depth of the engagement we were building helped us be in the right place at the right time when the advertisers' ears suddenly pricked up and they were like, tell me more about podcasting. Can you be the company that helps me figure out what I what my podcast strategy should be? And we were like, happy to oblige. We'd love to do that. Um, you know, if you look at the pure economics, the CPMs on podcasting are comparable to the CPMs on video. Sometimes they outstrip it. The... Uh, cost of production on podcasting can range wildly, um, as, as is somewhat true with video. But you have to be fairly heavily invested in terms of staffing, time, technology, and equipment to have really a full service, to be a full service video company, which is why a lot of the pivots to video have been accompanied by really painful layoffs of staffs with different sets of talents and hirings of entirely new staffs. The thing that's been nice for Slate is that podcasting and writing both are verbal pursuits and so a lot of our podcasts are just some of our most dexterous and smarty pants journalists talking to each other those are fairly simple to produce it's hard to get the right rapport get the right cast create a conversation that people want to come back to week after week but then if you do it um, they build on a set of things that we'd already been hiring for and investing in, finding people who have really interesting things to say, really interesting perspectives on the news, um, and are just kind of good company. We've also, of course, been investing in different kinds of formats. We've, you know, launched, there's been a lot of noise about The Daily and other daily news shows. We launched the first daily news podcast with The Gist a couple of years ago. Um, we managed to poach Mike Pesca from Public Radio, you know, and his show remains sort of the OG daily news podcast, and it's great. Uh, this year, we've had great success with Slow Burn, which is, um, you know, our a number one podcast, really our first foray into uh, serialized narrative podcasting. We're going to do more seasons of that. So we're just going to do more. <laughs> we're just going to keep investing. Yeah. I mean, you guys built the kind of podcasting uh, arm of Slate on more of these like GabFest models, but I'm, I've am i been really intrigued by Slow Burn and the more narrative-driven pursuits. And I know that you have another one coming up with Michael Lewis. And so is that something we can expect more investment in, in 2018 is, is the more narrative style versus the conversation or going to continue doing both in tandem? We're going to continue doing both in tandem. I mean, I think actually 
um, having diversified audio formats is really useful for a podcasting company. If you make all of your bets on series that require a year and a half worth of reporting and then 600 hours in the editing room going through tape and whittling it down to 10 perfect episodes, that's that's tough. That's like a real boomer bust business model. You really need that show to be a huge success for that to work economically. One thing I'm really proud about with Slow Burn is just that the business model for us is a little bit different um, in that we've done that as part of Slate Plus, which is our membership program. So for every great public-facing episode, like the one we just dropped this week about the Saturday Night Massacre, which is full of incredible details I did not know. So there's a great public-facing show that you can get on Apple Podcasts, and it's a hit show, and that's great. But every week, Leon Afak, the host, is saying, oh, and if you join Slate Plus, there's like a bonus episode, and here's my great interview with so-and-so. Um, and we're seeing really strong conversion to Slate Plus, our membership program driven by Slow Burn. So in addition to the kind of ad-supported model for podcasting, we're also finding that podcasting is a great driver for Plus and helps us diversify our revenue streams further. And for those news organizations that haven't quite gotten on the audio bandwagon yet, what's like your biggest piece of advice for pivoting to audio? I think it's harder now than it was four or five years ago. The space is getting more crowded, that people have their appointment listening. Like I wouldn't do it lightly, basically. I mean, I think it's the same with considering any new platform and whether it's right for you and your brand. Figure out what it is that the people who love you love about you and then figure out whether the new medium offers you a way to further cement that type of connection so that, you know, I think that's what fundamentally worked for us is that, People love our podcast for the same reason they love our writing. It's like smart people being loose and playful, but still really smart and helping make you smarter about the world. We do it in writing. We do it in audio. Frankly, we do it some in VR and video, too. They're just not huge areas of investment for us because we feel like podcasting was a format that allowed us to be ourselves, be our best selves. And so we did more. And I think that's, you know, no matter what kind of media company you're running, that's the key question to ask with whatever format or technology you're allowing. So, you know, if you are, uh, you know, if you're if you're focused entirely on narrative long form and you've only been doing writing, might you want to try getting into the narrative long form podcasting game? Maybe if you can afford it, it's expensive to make that kind of show, but that seems like that might fit. If you're really focused primarily on kind of local journalism or service journalism, is that as good a fit? I don't know. I, I actually think digital service is an interesting space that kind of has yet to be cracked. I don't know if you could do it in audio. I, those are the kinds of questions I would encourage people to ask. Turning now to the news of the week, Meg and I are joined by our colleague, Karen Ho. Karen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we have a government that's functioning for the moment. Yay. <laughs> but over this past weekend, we did not. And the blame game for that government shutdown has played out over the weekend and, and has continued. Uh, and we can expect that it will be back again in the news in three weeks if there is no deal reached on DACA and a larger immigration bill. So we wanted to kind of dive back into the way the media covered this event uh, that lasted just under three days. Meg, what was your takeaway from this weekend uh, of coverage and blaming and Schumer shutdown, Trump shutdown, whatever it was? I think the kind of TLDR version of this is it was about politics and not policy, which is something that we've seen over the last, I mean, 
not last year, but like forever, uh, style versus substance. And so when we think about the coverage of the shutdown, what we're hearing is like, who's to blame? Is it Trump's fault? Is it the Republicans' fault? Is it the Democrats' fault? And it's focused on the different players involved, which is important. And the politics of it, you know, very important as well. But the politics pretty regularly overshadow the actual policy and the long-term kind of impact of something like the like the government shutdown and specifically DACA. Uh, and so, you know, the government shutdown lasted 69 hours, I think. But policies that were largely part of the government shutdown are things that will last, you know, years. Yeah, the parallel I kept thinking about was the horse race coverage of elections as opposed to a real deep dive into varying candidates' policies. And we certainly saw that play out uh, during the 2016 election where the focus was often on character issues rather than what the candidates actually thought and what they planned to do about certain issues. Um, And I wonder if that's just a feature of what people are interested in or if there's something that journalists can do to actually try and draw attention to the nitty gritty, sometimes boring uh, policies that are being debated, discussed and, and argued over in Congress. I think journalists have to really think about it because increasingly it's becoming a a major front page issue like in regards to the tax bill, in regards to the cost of the wall. The thing is, if you are only talking about these policies as as concepts, right, and, you know, and even regular discussion of things like the wall and, and what it will entail and what it will actually cost, you know, that is something, as Meg said, will affect budgets and lives and industries for for decades to come. And I mean, even um, casual or offhand remarks about things like the solar industry, that affects tens of thousands of jobs and in entire businesses that rely on government policy in order for them to do their work. Yeah, it's tough. I sympathize somewhat with journalists because it is entertaining to talk about this almost like sports with two different teams and you have star players like Trump and Schumer. You have uh, this back and forth and there's winners and there's losers and it's seen as this zero-sum game that somebody's going to cave or somebody's going to bend to the will of the other. And that's entertaining. Um, That makes for the drama. That makes for really good front page stories that people are going to click on online or they're going to read in the paper. Um, So I I don't know if there's... You know, we're talking about the government blame game and we're sitting here kind of playing a journalism blame game. But I do think it's something that, as you said, Karen, we do have to think about and and try and push back against the easy impulse to cast this as some sort of sporting event. I think the challenge continually is to reject the easy narratives or the simplification of people and issues as characters and plot lines. The difficulty uh, is making policy and the details of those policies interesting to the general public. That is the challenge. That is the task that journalists need to really think about because it has long-term implications if they don't do this job well. And if we're not informing our readers, our listeners, our viewers of the impact these policies ha- will have on them, like the very tangible you know, effects, we're not doing our job. Well, we'll have another chance to, to do our jobs, uh, possibly in three weeks, because the funding bill that did pass only takes us into early next month. While that drama was playing out in D.C. last week and over the weekend, a very different dramatic scene was taking place in a Lansing, Michigan courthouse where survivors of sexual assault were confronting former Team USA gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser, who for decades has been abusing those under his care, uh, both 
star athletes, part of the Olympic team, students at Michigan State where he worked, and gymnasts at a local gym and team that he was uh, attached to. So, Karen, you've been looking at some of the reporting that has and hasn't uh, reached the public about this topic. Um, what have you been finding? Where, what kind of are you focusing on? I think the interesting thing about coverage of um, major sports scandals, especially involving systematic lack of oversight and also um, early warning signs, you know, early reported cases where people step forward and said, you know, I suspect or I feel like a person that I deeply trust has has um, sexually assaulted me. The thing that is striking about this is the number of victims who have come forward, which is now, I think, at 384. There are more than 160 people who came forward with witness statements right now in that Lansing, Michigan courthouse. And then the fact that USA Gymnastics, there have been reports about um, not necessarily sexual abuse, but abuse and mismanagement and harm to student athletes as early as 2005. Yeah. And there's been a good amount of coverage about this. A photo of Ali Raceman confronting Nasser was on the front page of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal on Saturday. ESPN ran a long feature about it uh, last week. But it doesn't seem like this has broken through in the way that, say, a Jerry Sandusky Penn State scandal has. It's unfortunate that a lot of attention really came onto the story um, after the USA gold medalists, Ali Raisman, Simone Biles, and Michaela Maroney stepped forward and said that they were victims. It's difficult because it's a sport that affects a lot of young girls. You know, victims were as young as six. But for a long time, there was not the level of uh, especially cable news coverage of the topic, um, even as far back as when the first stories were breaking out um, in September of 2016. And so it's been striking in terms of the reporting. And, you know, there's been multiple columns in places like the Huffington Post where even victims have stepped forward and said, we do not feel like this is getting the news attention that uh, other sports scandals have received in the past. And like uh, based on based on your reporting so far, why do you think that there was a disconnect between the coverage and the kind of gravity of the situation? It's it's a hard thing to prove a negative, but right now gymnastics at its heart is an Olympic sport that, you know, it is a marquee summer Olympic sport, but it is a sport that um, unless you are a big fan and you watch it closely or you participate in, in it even as a casual level, you know, it's a sport that really only receives super mainstream attention um, every four years when the Summer Olympics happen. And and even so, you know, it it's almost like the level of training required, we churn out and churn through these young athletes. And so it's a new team of people that we're paying attention to every four years. And so that makes it really hard in terms of other sports scandals where someone has been in the sport for a long time and they've built up sort of this public reputation or we, we feel like we know them for much longer. And also, um, there's the fact that this is a sport that affects a lot of young women, and it does not help that sports media is and a lot of sports sections of even national newspapers for sports sections, you know, there are not a lot of women in them. And so it's hard. You know, there are definitely male sports journalists who have been covering this for a long time, like the ones at the, the OC Register. But I think it doesn't help the situation that women who have been covering sexual violence, you know, from other sections. It's really crime reporters right now in the state of Michigan that are covering this story. It's not sports reporters. That's actually a really interesting point because for me, this this is more of a parallel to kind of the Catholic church, you know, institutional failures that were, you know, that came to light in the 90s. 
as opposed to sports scandals that I've that I've seen covered in the past. Yeah, and I think one of the parallels there is that it's been local journalists really doing the hard work. I mean, I think the first time this came across my radar was when the Indianapolis Star did a really deep dive into USA Gymnastics in an impressive series of investigative reports. Um, but there have been other local journalists who have been also on this story, both in Michigan and California. Yeah, the reporter that I spoke to, his name is Scott Reed, and he has been reporting on, um, you know, coaches who had relationships with their female gymnasts, you know, their underage female gymnasts. And these reports and investigative reports were published as early as 2005. And their long-term involvement, even after they were supposedly banned or suspended from their involvement in USA Gymnastics. And, you know, they had coached um, national and Olympic team gymnasts. So it's striking that uh, there has definitely been no lack of investigative reporting into systemic abuse and national sports and USA Olympic sports. But there's a huge question as to why it's continuing to be not um, until Ali Raisman and Michaela Maroney and Simone Biles spoke up that it really didn't make the morning shows, the uh, media shows, the cable news shows. It still surprises a lot of people. Yeah, it's just another example of the importance of local news and what we lose when those type of places uh, are diminished or shut down altogether. Our final topic turns to some other depressing news. Authorities in Michigan arrested a man last week who had called CNN 22 times earlier this month, threatening to shoot journalists, telling an operator at the main switchboard there, fake news, I'm coming to gun you all down. I'm on my way right now to gun the effing CNN cast down. I'm coming to kill you. Um, these calls were, some of these calls were recorded and the man was arrested. He's a 19 year old from Michigan. This is obviously concerning. It's great that they caught him, and this didn't seem to be a, a credible threat in the sense that um, he wasn't on his way. He wasn't found near any CNN employees. But it speaks to a larger concern about the culture for journalists. Um, you know, we've talked about it a lot around the world, but also in America. Yeah, this is, I think, one of the best examples we have of Trump's fake news rhetoric in action, like the the tangible kind of trickle-down effects of the president using his platform to regularly attack and harass the press. Yeah, it's notable that it was CNN and that the man used the same language that Trump does, calling them fake news. Uh, of course, Trump has both called out CNN in press conferences on Twitter. He tweeted out a clip last summer of him body slamming a figure with a CNN logo superimposed over the head. And, you know, this is uh, concerning. It's not that Trump is calling for anyone to shoot journalists, of course, but he's creating an environment and others. It's, it's not just Trump who have created an environment where journalists are seen as, quote, the enemy of the people. I think it's interesting because a lot of criticism about the press being too critical of Trump's comments regarding the media outside of Fox. This highlights that those concerns were totally validated. And with current gun laws in the United States, there's nothing that's really stopping this from happening very quickly again. Like something you know that happened in Kentucky the other day could happen easily at CNN headquarters. Like what's stopping someone? I mean, one of the things stopping them is that big news corporations like CNN uh, have increased security and they don't talk publicly all the time about those security measures. But in speaking with some people there and at other big news organizations like Dow Jones or NBC, they do. They're aware of this 
environment that's going on right now. And whatever security measures they had in place before have been ratcheted up. Um, there are protections in place. So this is certainly concerning. Um, you know, I think that goes without saying. But it's just in some ways seems like the new reality we live in. Yeah, I mean, we have a whole issue on press freedom and threats against journalists coming out in the next couple of weeks. So there's a lot to talk about in this space. Yeah. And in past years, I think a lot of that would have been focused uh, internationally. And there's certainly pieces in this magazine that we're excited to share with all of you that do focus on global threats. But it's striking the number of pieces in this issue that are focused on threats within the U.S. Not all of them related to the White House. There's certainly threats coming from the financial sector as well. But the rhetoric that Trump has used has, I, I think we can safely say, contributed to an environment where someone decides to, if not pick up a gun, at least threaten to pick up a gun and target journalists who have been critical of the president. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Uh, thanks to Slate's Julia Turner for speaking with Meg earlier. And thanks to Meg and Karen for being here to discuss the news of the week with me. As we said, we're very excited to tell you in the coming weeks about our new issue. Um, but until then, please check out all the great content we've got up at cjro.org. We'll see you next week.